Hey guys, welcome to episode 134 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to thank you for joining us and welcome you to the podcast if you're new. And it's getting to be that time of year again. The fall months are almost upon us. And something that we do every year is kind of this listener stories episode. So that's when we ask our listeners to submit stories to us about paranormal events, true crime experiences, or just anything scary that could have possibly happened to you. It's always a fun episode that we do in October. And it also gives us a really cool way to connect and talk to our listeners. Yeah, it's always great to like hear the stories and kind of go through them and and, be terrified. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. So if you have a story for us, you can submit it to us at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And for our new supporters on Patreon, we want you to know that we will emphatically thank you at the end of the episode because that is what you deserve. And today is a super intense one. So, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Uh, always. The dog days of summer in the Texas heat are usually nothing to play around with. But in 1990, nothing was stopping a group of nine-year-old children from escaping the confinement of their homes. In the overgrown fields besides their apartments, just on the outskirts of a wooded area, the children decided to play tag. They laughed as they tried to evade each other, the foxtail weeds hitting against their legs as they ran. As they were in the midst of their game, a girl called out to her friend. When he responded, the girl told him to come see what she had found. He met her at the edge of the field. She told him that as she was running, she tripped on someone. But it hadn't been one of their friends. As the boy headed down the trail, he saw something just as it began to curve away from where they were. It was a girl. She had to have been his age, maybe younger. She was naked and looked dead. She was unmoving, and even in the summer sun, she looked cold, and blood covered her entire body. The two looked at each other and said that they had to tell the boy's mother. His apartment was the closest to where they were. The pair turned and ran as fast as they could, yelling to the other children as they passed what they had seen and where they were going. The others followed. Their running no longer jovial, but purposeful. Something had happened to a little girl. Terrified, they must have been thinking. It could have been one of us. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Eight-year-old Jennifer Shewitt was always afraid of the dark. Whenever she was really scared, she knew she could get into bed with her mother. And that was the case on the night of August 9, 1990. The soon-to-be third grader crawled into her mother's bed in the next room of the apartment that the two shared. Jennifer knew that her mother's bed was always open if she didn't want to be alone. And vice versa, Jennifer's mother knew, although she didn't have a partner, she had divorced from her husband, she had her beautiful, funny, and loving little girl by her side. Together, they had it all. But on that night in particular, things were not as comfortable as you would think. Jennifer was restless in her sleep and had been kicking her mother. 
Her mother, exhausted, turned to her daughter and said, You're kicking me in your sleep, and I have work in the morning. Would you mind going into your own room tonight? Jennifer smiled back at her and said, Just because I love you, Mom, I'm going to sleep in my room tonight. Jennifer went into her bedroom and turned on the lamp. The room was now completely illuminated. She grabbed some of her books and brought them over to her bed, where she read until she fell asleep, surrounded by all of the stories she loved. The next morning, Jennifer's mother, Elaine, called out for her daughter to wake up. Jennifer always responded when her mother called out to her in the morning, and Elaine found it strange that her daughter didn't respond, so she went to check on her and Jennifer was not in her room. Panicked, her mother searched the entire apartment and looked around their garden apartment complex. She couldn't find her daughter anywhere. So after about 30 to 40 minutes of searching, Elaine called 911. She was desperate to find her daughter. And in the 911 call, she asked the police to come because she couldn't find her. And she did mention that there might be a possibility that she could be at a friend's house, but that she thought it was unlikely. Because this is the summer months, like school's just about to start. So in, in her head, because she's hoping for the best, she's thinking, okay, maybe Jennifer just wanted to get an early start on the day and start playing with her friends. But she wasn't with any of her friends. That must be one of the scariest moments, because you know your kid went to bed in the house. Safe. Safe. And now you wake up and she's just not present. That's really scary. Yeah. Because you weren't present for, like, somebody going missing. Like, you're out shopping with your kid. They go missing. You know, okay, they have to be in this vicinity. What can we do? But to just wake up in the morning and your daughter's not there. That's terrifying. Especially when you told her to go lay in her own bed. Yeah. That must be hard right now because you know that you might take that. Per- like not- She's got to be feeling guilty. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it's not her fault at all because that's such a like common occurrence. I don't know how many times my mom like kicked me back out of oh, their sh- bed and Oh yeah, same here. But I got to be thinking like she's just in complete panic mode like any parent would be when their child's missing, no matter how it happens. Yeah, definitely. I also think it's uh a little alarming because <laughs> like we for example, we used to live in a garden apartment, right? Yes. So now they're in the they, same situation. And they're on the first floor, too. Right. Same as us. Okay. So that's concerning as well cuz now could have could someone have come to the window of, of let's say her room and mm-hmm. taken her? Yeah. Oh man. Okay. It's scary. Yeah. That's why I was always terrified in our apartment because we're well. And now we live in a friggin' ranch, so f me, right? Like I'm like, why can't I just sleep with my window open? I never can because we're on the first floor. I think that even if we could, we wouldn't. If I was on the second floor, I would. Like okay. growing up, I was on the second floor, and I was asleep with my windows open person really yeah i never did that really oh my god it's amazing like in the like in the fall or the spring it's so cool yeah i don't think i've ever done that you're not living i know you don't know what living is (laughs) so the dickinson police department took the report of the missing girl seriously and sent units out to speak with elaine when they got there they took her statement and agreed jennifer leaving so early in the morning wasn't something that was likely Nor was the theory that the girl had run away, because there had been no argument with her mother, past or present. A cursory search of the apartment complex found Jennifer's window had been opened. Okay, so it's kind of what I feared. Yes. Okay. 
Elaine told the police that she didn't know if the window had been left unlocked, but she would tell Jennifer always not to sleep with her window open because they lived on the first story of this like two-story garden apartment complex. Because of the open window, detectives and crime scene units were called to the scene. Jennifer's bedroom, the window, and the window ledge were dusted for prints. But because a lot of people were in and out of the apartment, Elaine's family, friends, it would be hard to find any prints. And it would be really tedious to rule people out. And most kidnappings actually occur like the perpetrator is somebody that the child knows, whether it's like someone on the outskirts of the family or an immediate family member. So those are the prints that are going to be in Jennifer's room. So it's kind of like a conundrum there. It's like the person that took her most likely statistically is going to have their prints in the apartment. I mean, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Um, another thing, too, I mean, if it was somebody that she didn't know, then there, there could possibly be a struggle, you know, that you would maybe see. But Well, there was no struggle. Yeah. Scene. Which then kind of makes me think, okay, well, if it's not someone that she doesn't know and we can't rule out if it's someone that she does know because of the whole fingerprint situation of everyone being in and out of there, right? then it could be someone maybe that's a little older that, or or someone who lured her out. Yeah. Because that, that's the only other thing that it could be. That just is so creepy. That, like, image that you gave me is so creepy. Yeah. Like, a, it's almost like a Stephen King, like... Uh, it's like the Pied Piper. Yeah. Weird, yeah. right? So, the search for Elaine is going to begin. Police canvass the area and question all of those who lived in the surrounding apartments. Now, their building is... And it's actually very similar to where what we lived in. Is in a U-shape. Oh, really? Yes. So Jennifer's bedroom is going to face into the inner you. Like, imagine like an upside down you. I guess you could call it an arch then. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> people are going to think, like, what is oh wrong? <laughs> what is Sorry, wrong guys. With yeah. We're actually recording really early in the morning. <laughs> yeah. So the her bedroom window is facing into, like, the inner part of the arch. So her bedroom is kind of on display for all of the other windows that are facing within the courtyard, basically. I get it. Yeah. So they're thinking maybe somebody saw something. Well, if they had any neighbors like ours, I'm sure they, uh, Oh my God. If they had a tish, she'd be like, I know exactly who it is. I know what time she left. She would have already called the police. Oh yeah. Yeah. She probably would have been part of the investigation. She would have taken that guy down. Oh Yeah. (laughs) But when law enforcement is going to talk to all of the neighbors within the complex, they really said we were all sleeping because it was a work night. So everyone was in bed when whatever happened to Jennifer took place. So a grid search of the area surrounding the complex also began. But law enforcement and volunteers would not have to search long because it was that day that the group of kids playing tag found the body of a little girl. Once the kids reached the boy's apartment, the boy who had actually seen the body, as he was running into his apartment, he was in a panic, obviously. I mean, God, he just saw a dead body, right? So he trips on his front step and literally falls into his apartment. And he just starts like screaming to his family, 
there's a girl in the woods, there's a girl in the woods, she's dead. And not understanding really what he was talking about or knowing if it was real, his mother runs out to what he's referring to. And she sees the little girl. And then she runs back to the apartment, call 911, and first responders come within minutes. And when the first responders got to Jennifer's body, they were shocked. Crimes like this didn't take place in Dickinson. So they weren't used to dealing with a victim like this. You know, to see the young girl who was naked, covered in blood, blood pooled around her. Um, There were fire ants all over her body. It was alarming and sad. Like, even though they're trained to deal with this, I feel like you're never trained to emotionally have to deal with this. I know this is going to sound a little odd, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure we could all kind of understand. Like... You think about it. Professionals that are dealing with this, like, they know that at some point they're going to see an adult that might be in such a way. But to see a child there, I think, is a whole other level that you are not expecting. I feel like that never – you never get used to that. Yeah, like, I'm sure seeing a dead body, period, in such a way is bad. I'm not trying to take away from that, but I think it's just a whole other level that you're not prepared for. Yeah. Because I'm sure that any mother or father that is a, a first responder would see that and completely, like... Immediately think of their children. Right. And that's something we always see with detectives, too. Like, especially when they have kids their age that deal with cases of children, it always kind of strikes a chord with them. So as first responders get closer to Jennifer, they realize the source of blood is um, from her throat. Her throat has been slashed very deeply. And as is practice, they check her vitals, and she's still alive. What? She was still alive. No way. She had a weak pulse, but she was clinging to life. So she's rushed to the hospital and airlifted to John Seeley Hospital in Galveston. That is insane. Wow. Okay. So the pictures of Jennifer in the hospital before, after her surgeries are haunting. When you see them, it seems impossible that this girl survived. It was truly a miracle and the work of great doctors. At the hospital, a rape kit was performed. It was later determined that the young girl had been raped. Surgery was performed to repair the deep cuts on her throat that extended from one ear to the other. Her vocal cords had been cut. And the doctor warned Jennifer's mother and father that there was a chance that when she woke up, she might not be able to talk again. Now, this is every parent's nightmare, right? Your daughter goes missing, but she's found. And although something horrific has happened to her and she survived the unthinkable, she survived. So the relief that she was alive must have been so good for her parents to hear but now they have this really difficult journey of healing for this eight-year-old both physically and emotionally and now it's kind of unknown how long-term these scars are going to be meaning like her not being able to speak yeah i mean there's a lot to navigate there and you know even though this is horrible that's what's happened to her and all the surgeries and everything a lot of parents and victims don't get a chance 
like a second chance. Yeah. So it's like, you know, we have to figure out, we have to get her right and figure out what happened. Yeah. Because that's the, I mean. Now, this is amazing that yeah. she's alive because she can communicate to detectives who did this. Yeah, or just any kind of clue at all. It's, you always cover cases where victims become voiceless because they have been murdered. And now she might be voiceless. Like, she might not be able to speak again, but she can communicate and she has survived. And she gets to tell her story, which is amazing because to hear that from the perspective of the victim is just something that we don't get to hear a lot. So it is incredible when a victim survives. Yeah, absolutely. And think about the events that took, like, how that panned out because – those kids just kind of stumbled upon her by playing yes. a game. Like, imagine that. If, this is all by chance. Yeah. Like, those odds are slim, all of them. Even Down to being found, being airlifted, having the surgery, being able to not, yep. you know, uh, something to go wrong during surgery. Like, everything was really slim here. Everything so. fell into place perfectly for the survival of Jennifer. Yeah, that's awesome. It's good to hear. Now that Jennifer was in recovery... The police, her family, and the hospital staff dealt with the investigation afterwards and how to keep her safe. It was clear that whoever did this to Jennifer intended for her to die because she had most likely seen them. Detectives were nervous that whoever did this would come back to finish what they had started. So for her safety, an officer was posted outside of Jennifer's hospital room door. The nurses and Jennifer's parents did everything they could to make Jennifer comfortable in her recovery. But they and the staff were gripped with fear that Jennifer may be in danger. At this time, Jennifer was awake, but very weak, and was unable to speak. So the police chose, especially because they wanted to minimize her trauma, to let her gain her strength and be in peace while she was doing it. So they waited to question her or talk to her extensively, about what had taken place. So the investigators instead poured themselves into the physical investigation of the scene, where she was found and any evidence that could be collected there or elsewhere surrounding that area. They did another grid search. And because of the violence of the crime and the age of the victim, the FBI is introduced into the investigation. And this is really good because, again, Whenever the FBI gets involved, you're going to have more manpower, more resources, and more experience. Yeah. And also, that was very considerate of of the police to do that. I mean, she does need to recover, and she doesn't – you know, you don't want this girl dealing with this right now. Extensive trauma. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's enough at I think this we've point. come a long way in learning how to treat a victim, especially a child victim, and – And that means now. So in 1990, this was really considerate of law enforcement. Also, you have to understand, now that you have the FBI involved, plus your police force, you can go through the physical, um, you know, uh, evidence and try to rule things out before you even speak to the victim. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's a good way. It was good on their part to do that. Now, the FBI profile stated that this man's behavior is need driven. And his sexual fantasies are depraved. And that was what drove him to commit the crime. 
it was also highly likely that he would try to silence Jennifer or strike again to take out his frustrations, which is scary because now the children of Dickinson, Texas were terrified. I mean, yeah, you have, um, essentially, you have a killer in your town. (laughs) That took someone from their bedroom. Yeah. So this is serious. Okay, so we're going to take a break here to talk about our first sponsor of the show. So at the site where Jennifer was found, a UV light was used to search for any possible fibers that might have been left there. And the crime scene technicians were in luck. Tiny, microscopic cotton fibers were found just feet from Jennifer's, where Jennifer's body had been. I keep thinking of the movie Jennifer's Body Jennifer's when body. I say that. Yeah. <laughs> In another stroke of luck, as officers were canvassing the area, Jennifer's pink pajama top and cotton underwear were found two blocks away from where her body was found. And her clothes were wrapped in a man's blue shirt and underwear. So it seems like whoever did this kind of got rid of all of the clothing that was worn. And on these articles of clothing, um, particularly the male underwear, there was a small semen stain. So this was going to be helpful. But remember, it's 1990. Yeah, like uh, in 1990, there's no CODIS, is there? No, there's no CODIS. There's barely DNA testing. Ugh. So Imagine a world, no DNA testing or barely any. That's why it was so easy to get away with things. I know. It's so crazy, right? Most of our true crime mysteries come from the time before DNA. <laughs> so this was hard. The Dickinson police, even the Texas state police, would not have been able to do anything with this sample because DNA testing was in its infancy. So thank God the FBI is involved. And they send this sample over to FBI headquarters in Quantico to be analyzed. And this is something that would take weeks to be completed. And even that was a long shot because sending in evidence that was that small, really, it was going to be hard for scientists to analyze. At the time, they needed a sample size about 20 millimeters, which is like the size of a quarter. And the sample they had was much less. Yeah. Compared to today where I'm sure it's really small. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I want now see in cases like this. You would also bag the evidence and keep it safe because you never know if, you know, 20 years pass or 15 years pass and then you start to check, you know, that kind of evidence you could find. Well, you would hope that would happen. You would hope. Right, right. While they waited for the lab test results to come back, the detectives learned that Jennifer was gaining her strength and she wanted to communicate with them. Jennifer was having a difficult time in the hospital. She had all the love and support in the world between her family, friends, and the staff. But in a later interview she did with CBS News, Jennifer reflected that the first time she had seen herself was when one of her uncles purchased her like a Tinkerbell makeup set, and in that makeup set was a mirror. And she was horrified at what had happened to her because she'd yet to see herself since the attack. Her skin was bruised. She had a huge wound across her neck and she had tubes coming out of her neck and all the blood vessels in her eyes were still broken from when her attacker strangled her. 
That's really sad. Hey, come on, Uncle. That was probably not the best idea. But maybe he didn't know. We'll give <laughs> him the benefit of the trying. doubt. Maybe he didn't trying. know there was a mirror in this makeup set. I, you, you know, know what? He's just trying to. I see what he's doing. Yes. He just missed the mark. <laughs> That's like a typical like uncle move. Like that you is think an it's uncle perfect, move. And then yes. uh, doesn't go your way. Yep. You know what? Uh, really quickly though, I was I was thinking about uh, one of the things when they found the shirt and the underwear rolled up. It that's odd to me because that would mean that he left the scene with no underwear and no shirt. He must have just been wearing his pants. Yeah, or maybe there was a vehicle close by, and that's how he, maybe he was able to change his clothes. Well, they're thinking that he it was all on car like in car. Okay. Like he took her to a car and he's was right. driving around. So what I'm getting at is if, if meaning the proximity must be pretty close and maybe they might find some tire tracks because if you go into the woods with her and now you took off your underwear, your shirt, you rolled it up and you left it there, then now you're walking to wherever you're going to. The the clothing was found 2 blocks away from where her body was found. So it appeared that he Threw the clothing out the car window as he was driving away. Okay, so the but what I'm saying is the car must have been close. The car was parked in the overgrown lot where the kids were playing tag, so they weren't able to get any um, tire imprints from that. Ah, I was gonna say because that would have helped so much. I know what you mean like if he was parked yeah. kind of in a wooded area, then maybe there was, but it wasn't like that kind of location further away from the overgrown lot where it was a wooded area and the path that was where her, she was. So if he could have driven up there, there probably would have been tire imprints, but he was further back for, you know, before not the for lot. Us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because that would have been great because you could find so many things with the tire imprint, especially yes. back then where you don't have DNA evidence, you could kind of figure out what kind of car it was or truck or whatever based on the tire marks. Right. Kind of, you know, make your search smaller. No, that would be good, but they didn't have that in this, in this case. <laughs> Unfortunate. So now you have Jennifer, who is gaining her strength, and she really was desperate to talk to police and tell them what had happened to her. And so was her mother and the, the nurses at the hospital. Like, they would encourage her to write down things and communicate that way. But now, you know, it's hard because the writing skills are limited with an eight-year-old child and the fact that she was still weak. So it was complicated to kind of get this story. It wasn't as easy as one would think. But what must have been frustrating is that the story was right there, but it was difficult to be communicated. So Jennifer, as she gained her strength, told her mother and the nurses that she wanted detectives to come back. Jennifer had started writing down what she remembered before the detectives even got there on the morning of August 14th. Her note read, I was asleep. A man opened the window and grabbed me. The detectives began to ask her questions, and she would respond by writing on the notepad that she had. So it is confirmed that she was sleeping in her room and she was taken from her window. First, they wanted to confirm that the articles of clothing that they had sent in for testing were hers. So they asked her what she had been wearing to bed, and she confirmed that she had been wearing the pink t-shirt and the white and blue patterned underwear. 
Then he asked if he took her from her bed. Yes, she wrote and grabbed me. Shut up. Obviously meaning that he told her to shut up. Jennifer was asked to describe the man. She wrote that he had glasses, a black mustache, that he was white, and she thought he was in his 30s. She said he had a few tattoos and one of them was green and that he also had a pocket knife with him. She went on to write that he said he was an undercover cop and then she wrote big gun. He said, I don't have my badge right now. I mean, I will tell you that for an eight-year-old girl that suffered such trauma, she has really pinpointed some really interesting things. Yes. So you have... It shows how incredibly strong she is and how she wants to get this man. 100%. We know that he had a knife, obviously, now a gun, the tattoo. Like, she got everything. So those are a lot of things to work on. Now... I think that the biggest thing that I would do next is I would actually canvas that entire apartment complex because sometimes, you know, we consider, I think everyone considers their home as their safe place, okay? Yeah. But that is that is exactly what someone that is capable of this would love. Everyone to feel like they're safe in their home. He, might, This person could literally be living in the apartment, like the apartment area. Right. I would just canvas everybody there, check for tattoos. Someone that fits the description. Right. Everyone in the, in the vicinity. Yeah. Does anyone match this description? Absolutely. How many apartments can be in a complex? Right. So you never know. He, This person could have just been walking along, knew that she was there. It's, it's easy for him right in his backyard. No, it's very true. So I, that's what I would do first. Well, they want to continue getting more of the story because she has a lot to tell. Okay. Next, they ask her what kind of car he drove. And she wrote two doors, a bluish yucky color, and that he had a scar on his face. So she drew a face and then she made marks where the scars were on the man's face. Next, she wrote down that he had beer cans in the car and cigarettes. And she said that he had Bud Light cans and that they were the red and white Marlboro brand of cigarettes. So she was really observant. I mean, this is just incredible information that she's giving detectives. This girl is awesome. Yeah. I mean, what seriously? What, like, what a recall? Oh, the ability to recall everything. Yeah, especially after the trauma she suffered. Yeah. And not to say that it would be wrong, but a lot of young girls, children in her position, might be so scared that this person's going to come back that they feel like they didn't want to tell police everything. And she is just so adamant and strong of, no, I'm going to get this guy back. And that's like such bravery for an eight-year-old girl. It is. He told her that he worked at a garage and the Dickinson and Galveston police stations. So again, he, this was his, his ruse was I'm an undercover police officer you're safe with me. I have to go um, bring you somewhere where your mom is going to come get you. That's what he said to her. Okay. So now she's grown up, you know, being told to trust police officers. Police officers are good. So she's confused because she just woke up. But she also is like, okay, you know. So this was a confusing time for her when she was first kidnapped by this man. 
Next, they asked the girl where she had been taken. She drew a map for them, showing them that she had first been taken to the parking lot of her elementary school. That's so sad. There, he asked her if she wanted candy, but she wrote that she said no way. And it's sad here because, like, he is ruining every area of comfort for her in her life, right? The peace and sanctity of her bedroom and now her elementary school, and he's driving her around her town. So all of these memories, all of these places are going to be tied with this event that happened in her life. And this is where when she's writing to the detectives, and they always say it's so interesting, like your writing changes as your emotions change, and her writing completely changes. It's visible on the page, like that she's getting emotional. And she's she's scribbling faster and everything is kind of disjointed, whereas before it was quite clear. And she says, he choked me four times as hard as he could. The detectives asked if this was in the car and she wrote, yes, in the car. Next, she wrote, thought him in the back seat, which might mean fought him in the back seat. Uh, pocket knife. He dragged me to a field. The man dragged me to a big field. I'm in pain. Then she remembered something and wrote it down in bold print. He said his name was, and she wrote the letters D-I-N-N-E-S-E. So confused, the detectives try to like say it, like sound it out. Like, is this the last name? Is this like is this an interesting, different kind of name? So they're trying all these different things. And finally, someone says, Dennis. And she nods. Oh. So he said his name was Dennis. You know what's interesting, too? I bet that this guy really thought he killed her. Because there's no way that you would be doing this and, and like giving your name away. I mean, the only thing is, he probably wanted her to be extremely comfortable. And he thought like that that's what he could do to get her. But I don't think that he thought that she would be alive right now. Right. And that's why he did tell her his name. I think that if he had just assaulted her and left her, that he probably would have lied about his name because his intentions were to murder her. I don't think he had a problem kind of speaking the truth a little bit. So but then he lied about being the police officer. So this could be his real name. This could not be. But this was a clue. To be honest, I mean, him being a police officer could be real. You never know. Right. Maybe it's not fake. Maybe he's not an officer, but maybe he's someone that works within the police office or or, or right. does – he could be anything. He could even be a, a mechanic that works in the police station for the vehicles or anything. Well, that's true. Anything for, for that matter. Well, the next thing the detectives had Jennifer do was sit with the sketch artist to go over what the man looked like. A rough sketch was created and placed on posters along with the name Dennis in association with the car that had been described. Of course, wanting to help, leads poured in from all around the county. All of them seemed promising, but they all led nowhere. Sometime after Jennifer had sat with the sketch artist, a miracle happened. She regained her ability to speak. Another miracle. Her severed vocal cords had been repaired. 
And once her voice was back, she was able to tell detectives in more detail what had happened that night and close the gaps in her written story. That is unbelievable. Yeah. And I am so happy that that's how this went. Yeah. And her family jokes, once she started talking, she never stopped talking (laughs) again after that. So she said she had been sleeping with her mother because she was afraid of the dark and didn't want to be alone. But it was a rough night because she had a lot of mosquito bites. So she kept itching and rubbing her legs against the sheets. And because she was doing that, she was kicking her mother in the process. So her mother suggested that she go to her room. But at that point, the little girl couldn't sleep. She turned on her super bright lamp and began reading books and counting all of the money in her piggy bank. Something we all did at eight years old. And she said the last thing she remembered was looking at the clock and it had been around 2.30 a.m. And she must have fallen asleep because she awoke in someone's arms and they were running. That's when she woke up. Are you you serious? Yes. Like, oh my God. The imagery that I just got with that is insane. That is the most most terrifying thing I think I've ever heard. Uh, Yeah. Now, as she was slowly opening her eyes because she was awakening and she realized what happened, what was happening and her eyes got big, you know, she was just about to scream. The man covered now because she's so little and he's a man her his hand covered her nose and mouth and he covered her nose and mouth and told her to shut up and not scream he was an undercover police officer and he was there to help her so then he puts her in the front seat of his car and drove away as they were driving he told her not to worry Um, he was going to bring her to a location and they were going to wait for her mother to show up that something had happened while she was asleep Now, Jennifer had always been taught that police officers are good and they're there to help. So she struggled with knowing there was something wrong, but being confused because he was a police officer. He drove several miles with her through the residential streets of Dickinson. At one point, he drove past her grandparents' house. Desperately wanting a way out of this situation that she didn't understand and him saying, I'm going to wait for your mom. She told him, um, just drop me off at my grandparents' house. They're right there. And he told her that he couldn't because no one was home. Now, Jennifer knew this was a lie because both of her grandparents' cars were in the driveway. She's so smart. Yes, I know. And this is when it clicked for her. She'd been kidnapped. That this man's not a police officer. That is so sad. I know. You leave it to you to always get me upset. I know, I know. (laughs) I was like, you know, John's going to get really emotional with this one. That's so sad, you know? I know. But what a smart girl, you know? She really is. Now, as she said in the notes, he took her to her elementary school. Now, detectives' interests were piqued at this moment because if this was a person from out of town... He most likely would have grabbed Jennifer and then headed west towards the highways to get out of town. But instead, this person headed east through the town. He knew the streets and he knew where to take her. They felt as if they were dealing with someone local. 
and while they were parked at the elementary school, he tried to offer her candy, but she refused, and that was something that her mother had taught her, never take anything from strangers. You know, that's interesting, and like I said, I, I know that it has to be somebody in the town. It has to be, and that list kind of grows. Well, my thing is, why would you bring her to an elementary school unless he felt comfortable there? I think it was because it was in a first. It's the summertime, right? Yeah. So, and it's three a.m. or sometime around there. It was an abandoned, not abandoned, but it was a desolate place to go. They were parked behind the school, so no one would have seen the car. Right, but what I guess what I'm trying to allude to here is this person had to have knowledge of an area being completely dead, and no one would find him there. Right. So. He's definitely from the town. If I'm to compile a list now, I'm thinking, okay, could it be a janitor? Could it be a a, a lunch worker? Going the Freddy Krueger route? Yeah, yeah. Could it be a a custodian, a a lunch worker, some employee, I don't know, of the school? I feel like that would be a little bit more prevalent if the school year was taking place. I mean, I guess you're right. I'm just trying to figure out. I guess what I know for a fact is that this person has to be living in the town. Yeah, he he has a knowledge of the area or from the area. Bus driver, maybe. You never know. That's how he would know where this pers- uh, girl lived. Maybe he was, like, canvassing her for a while, and that's and he's the bus driver and knows that, she, you know, he drops her off at school. You're going wild right now. I know, I am. But this is this is my thought process. I think okay. of every single job title that you would be around children. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, you're deep into summer. True. but that doesn't, So the fantasy is yeah. not there because they're not seeing the child. I mean, I understand, but you never know, though. He, it could have just been no, like an impulse you type. No, go, you go down all of your routes. I'm here I, I know. For I feel it. like I'm going down every rabbit okay. hole. <laughs> Sorry. So Jennifer is going to continue telling her story to detectives. And they, where we left off, they were at the elementary school. He's going to offer to give her candy. She refuses. Once she refused the candy, he drove her to another location, which was at the overgrown lot that was next to another apartment complex. The whole time he'd been telling her that there was a gun in the backseat of the car. Once they got to the lot, he asked Jennifer to reach into the backseat to get the gun. She got up, practically having to stand in the front seat to lean over to reach into the backseat. And as she was trying to find the gun, he grabbed her and ripped her clothes off. And that was where the rape took place. During the assault, he choked her four times. The fourth and final time caused her to pass out. When she awoke again, she was being dragged across the overgrowth towards the path that she would eventually be found at the following day. She didn't want him to hurt her again. So, as because she came to while he was dragging her, so he wasn't looking at her. And she closed her eyes immediately because she wanted to play dead. Because he wanted, she wanted him to leave her alone. Which is another smart thing to do. Once he took her to where he wanted her, just beyond the path, he sliced her throat with the knife. And then left. She had been left on a pile of fire ants. So this is just horrific. So as she's laying there, she doesn't want him to know that she's still alive because she thinks he'll come back. But now she's on fire ants, on 
she's just disrupted a pile of fire ants. So now they're crawling all over her, biting her and stinging her. But she can't scream. She can't do anything because she doesn't want him to know that she's alive. While also bleeding. But she doesn't know that she doesn't realize her her neck has been slashed yet. No, I know. I understand that. But yeah. I mean, for us, that's what's for taking us, place. I mean, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, when she realized he was gone, she opened her mouth to scream, but no sound would come out. And she could barely move her body and she couldn't lift her head. Now, it took all of her force, but she wanted to find out what was happening with her body. So she was finally able to throw her hand onto her neck. And that's when she felt the gap, the cut, and all the blood. Oh, man. He'd cut her throat, and she was bleeding a lot. This poor kid. I know. Eight years old. So that was when she began to pray. She prayed for her family and all of the people she loved. She kept sliding in and out of consciousness. And when she woke up, she realized that it had become light outside. And she watched the clouds and saw the treetops. And the pain of the ants was just intensifying and burning. But in a way, I think that might have also kept her coming in and out of consciousness. Yeah, like, I mean, I feel like when you're in pain like that, maybe even un- unknowingly sometimes, that's kind of spiking adrenaline most likely. It's keeping you alive. Yeah. You know, that's probably what it is too. Because, you know... People say that that's what happens when you're in extreme pain or, or extreme danger. You're able to just, you know, your body kicks into like the survival, survival mode. Survival mode. Yeah. In an interview with CBS, Jennifer had this to say about her time in the grass. I couldn't move my body. I would try so hard to lift my head, but I couldn't. I would come in and out of consciousness. And every time I would, I would be in disbelief that I hadn't died yet. Laying there, I could kind of look to the side, and through those blades of grass and in the brush, I could see cars. It was like help was right there, but I couldn't get to it. I can't scream, I can't lift my head, I can't stand up. But I don't remember feeling scared. I remember feeling at peace with what was about to happen, which was dying. That's that's incredible to, like be able to speak about that and and remember it so clearly like it was yesterday oh i'm sure she always remembers that yeah the last time jennifer woke up she heard children playing she had even felt the girl trip over her but at that point she had no strength to move and she went unconscious again shortly after that the next thing she knew she had a police officer kneeling beside her and they said you've been found you're going to be okay. Just please stay with me. It's nuts. It's it's nuts to hear this story. It took Jennifer months of rehab to recover from the brutality that she had faced. Her physical scars were plentiful. She had a large scar on her neck. She had to wear a breathing tube for most of her third grade year. The scars from the stings and bites. And the doctors told her mother that because of the, the the sexual assault that she might not be able to ever have children. Oh. 
but beyond the physical, there was the emotional. After the abduction and attack, she was fearful of any male, and the idea that this man had not yet been caught made her extremely anxious. She always felt petrified that he was going to come back and finish what he had started. So in the face of strangers, she kind of always saw this man. I mean, listen, you can't blame her. And that trauma makes 100% sense. Think yeah. about that. I mean, it must be someone from the town. You, can, you haven't found him yet. You're lucky to be alive. And you also have to realize that you don't think that's going to be news around town that this person, that this has kid. survived. Right, exactly. So, like, yeah, she has a reason to be worried. And at eight years old, she's smart enough to know that. Right. You know, that's all this is taking place. But everything that she's feeling is completely justified, obviously. Now, weeks into the investigation and after Jennifer was able to speak again, the lab results from Quantico came in. Unfortunately, the sample that was provided was too small to work with. However, they were able to determine that the fibers found around Jennifer's body matched the material of the man's underwear that had been found two blocks from the scene. Within the underwear, they also found two pubic hairs, and they were determined to be from a male of Caucasian descent. Now, they're also able to find, like from the semen sample, even though they can't get a type of DNA profile from the semen sample, what they were able to determine was that the sample came from a secretor male, meaning that in his semen sample they're able to determine his blood type so they did have his blood type oh wow okay because it took a lot to test hair they knew that they would only have kind of one shot to test these hairs so did they want to break apart the hair and get the mitochondrial dna try to i mean it was a long shot that they would even be able to do that but then they would destroy the sample or Do they hold on to the sample and try and wait until they get a suspect to compare it to? Please tell me that it was the second thing that they decided to do. They did. They did. They decided to wait until they had a suspect to compare the hair to instead of destroying it. Good. Yes. I'm happy. That was a good. But it was hard to make that choice. Yeah. Because they really wanted to get this guy. But they were like, let's wait till we have a viable suspect. And that's where this case is going to remain for years. Unsolved with a witness alive and physical evidence. Just no suspect, which is so frustrating. And usually it's the other way around, right? Well, usually with cases, I'm sure detectives say, if only our victim survived, they could tell us everything. Right. But sometimes that doesn't matter. That's true, too. If there's no suspect, there's no suspect. And to think that, like... We don't really run into cases like this where this girl has recalled everything, pretty much everything of that night, even the person's name, and so many things to go off of. She's a phenomenal witness. Oh, yeah. And yet we still have no suspect. Yeah. Which is crazy to me because of, like, all the cases that we do, we don't have any of it. Everything is just the police doing legit police work. And usually, and we've had more suspects in other cases. Yeah. So the next lead doesn't come until 1993, when Jennifer, who is now a fifth grader, um, saw a newspaper over her mother's shoulder. And she thinks the picture of the man who's listed in the obituary 
is the man that kidnapped and attacked her. Really? So Elaine, Jennifer's mother, was shocked at this because she knew the man. She'd gone to high school with him. He was in prison and had been killed during a prison fight. So Elaine reached out to the detectives and let them know that Jennifer thought this was the man. The detectives were already thinking, okay, I'm glad we saved that hair sample because now we have somebody to compare it to. But they had not acted fast enough. The man had been buried already, so they would need further evidence to prove that he could potentially be the one who had abducted Jennifer three years prior. Because, I mean, they don't just exhume a state prisoner's body because somebody thought he was somebody. Of course. I mean, you, just like anything else, you need proof and evidence. Right. So they take a further look at his file and they learn more about him. See if he committed other similar crimes. And after going through his file once right away, they knew this couldn't be their guy. His blood type wasn't the same as Jennifer's assailant. Okay, well, that's a big indicator right there. <laughs> yeah, so they knew it wasn't him. He was also um, going through a court case at the time. So there was something with house arrest. Like, they knew where he was. So okay. it couldn't have been him. Now, although this lead didn't go anywhere, I think it's really prevalent to the case as a whole. Because it speaks to how much Jennifer Shewitt had to live with what happened to her. I mean, think about this. three years later. Fifth grader's biggest concern is usually school chores, and this poor girl is looking over her shoulder for a man who raped and tried to kill her, and she sees him in everyone. That's really sad. And it shows the trauma that this incident really laid upon her at such a young age. Yeah, and I don't want to take uh, – and it's going to sound weird, but like I don't want to take away anything at all. Obviously, she's alive, and we're all thankful for that. But regardless of that, like her childhood has been ripped away from her. Yeah. The innocence is gone. She's, you know, things that a kid doesn't need to think about is always on her mind. That is such a horrible thing. It's really sad. Yeah. That's just a horrible thing to have to experience. And also it's horrible for her parents to have to watch that even play out. Yeah. I agree. So, yeah, you're right. She should never have to be dealing with that right. as a fifth grader or anything. Who thinks of that when they yeah. meet uh, an adult man, she looks at his face to see if it's him. Yeah. And that was the last lead the case had because it became cold. And Jennifer worked really hard, as a strong woman she is, to live with the trauma of what had happened to her when she was a little girl. But in 2008... 18 years after the attack, the FBI chose to take the cold case on again. The reason why this case was prioritized was because of the short profile that had been done on the man that committed this crime. There was a twisted, sadistic component to his crime, and in order for him to act on his sexual fantasies and become gratified, he would need to torture or seek humiliation with his victim. And he had chosen a child for this. Based on what the FBI had learned over the 18 years since Jennifer's attack, they knew that a man as sick as this would not just do something like this once. He was someone that really needed to be brought to justice because there was most likely other victims out there and possibly future victims. That's actually a great point. 
by the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> because it is true. Like, I was thinking that to myself. If this guy hasn't been caught in 1990, the, he had to. he's going to do it again. Had to have. So now the biggest thing is, okay, let's look around to see if there have been crimes that sound or are very familiar with what happened in 1990. Exactly. He had to have hit again. There's no way that he didn't. Well, this case was given to agents at the Texas City Field Office and the FBI, and eventually the CARD team got, gets involved, and the CARD team is the Child Abduction Rape Deployment Team. And their resources went into this cold case because there was a potential that this man had continued his crimes. Now, they're also going to work in conjunction with the Dickinson Police Department. So they work with a detective there. So basically, a detective from the police department and an agent from the FBI field office in Texas City are going to be working this case together. Okay. Oh. Um, yes. If this guy did do this again, I want to throw out what I think. Okay. And I think... That even though this is great, what the FBI is doing with the police in Texas, because we're talking about Texas. Yeah. So, uh, I think that the, whoever this person is, I think he's smart enough to not hit in the same state again. Okay. That's my that's my guess. All right. Well, I don't think he's smart, but what I'm saying is I don't think he would I go to a place where he's already done this before. Right. So I think that we're going to be looking outside the scope of Texas. That's my guess. Okay. If he even did this again. Now, in order to get everything right and handle the case with care, law enforcement wanted to work with Jennifer Shewitt to take him down. So they called Jennifer, who has always been involved. Whenever anyone reaches out from any department, she always agrees to work with them. She's really still passionate about wanting to find this man. At that point, she had gone on to graduate from college and she was working as a children's librarian at a local library. She was also in a relationship for about three years at that point with a loving and supporting man named Jonathan. That is the best thing I could hear. Yeah. That she got her life together and yeah. she's with someone that cares for her. She didn't let what happened to her take Consume over her. her life. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, you're right. Yeah. Over the years, her case had been passed on to different detectives and agencies, so she didn't have much hope, but she would, of course, give them anything they needed because she was sensitive to the fact that others might have gone through the same thing she did and maybe not survive. As the detective from the Dickinson Police Department and the FBI agent went over all of the files relating to Jennifer's case, they agreed with the assumption that the initial investigators had, that this man was from Dickinson or was familiar with the area. Next, they wanted to track down evidence. So this goes to what you said of, oh, I hope they are taking care of that evidence so it can later be tested. They were very lucky to find that the clothing that had been found about a quarter mile from the scene, the one that had the pubic hair and the semen sample, had been perfectly preserved. Good. I'm so glad. <laughs> yep. And housed at the Galveston County Sheriff's Department. So they knew it was a long shot. Physical evidence deteriorates rapidly over time, especially in humid climates like Texas. And they were hopeful, but they, they didn't like, they knew that this was a long shot again. 
and they sent all this physical evidence over to Quantico to be tested because that really is the best crime labs that we have in the country. Now, that's great and all, but I just want to add, unless this person has been put in CODIS, there's not going to be any kind of match together here. No, but at least they'll have a DNA profile that'll be easier to compare. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So in the meantime, they had a sketch artist work on the age progression photo to go hand in hand with the photo that the original sketch artist created, which Jennifer said really did very closely resemble the man that had abducted her. Then a $10,000 reward was also issued. They figured that maybe 18 years ago, somebody knew something, but they were scared to talk. But now that so much time has passed, they might be more comfortable with like saying, hey, I know something. Because basically two decades has gone by. Yeah. Also, And also, if, yeah, if they're going to um, age the sketch, so to speak, you know, it's going to make someone it could hit on somebody that, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I know that guy. He's my yes. neighbor. <laughs> yeah. You know, something crazy like that. But unfortunately, nothing is going to come of either endeavor. Ah, damn. I know. I'm sorry. All right. So Quantico Labs got back to them in September of 2009. They were able to make a profile based on the DNA that was found in the waistband of the male's underwear. See, back in 1990, they they didn't even process anything from that. That's crazy, right? And and. 18 years later, sweat from a waistband. Because, you know, time really, you know, the, the technology makes a big difference. It's nuts. And in solving cases, yes. it's so crazy. You almost wish we could just pour all of our resources into the retesting of cold case stuff. I mean, I feel like they definitely have. Oh, no, there's know. so much untested yeah. evidence. Well, you know what it is? It's, it is expensive. You it know? is. Labs are lab and lab workers. It's an expensive process, I'm sure. I know. It's just it's frustrating. So they're able to make a profile based on the DNA that was found on the waistband of the male underwear. They were shocked. And now they had this amazing resource of CODIS. So they enter the DNA profile that they were given into CODIS. And just like that, they found him. Oh, okay. Finally got him. His name was, in fact, Dennis. Oh, my God. (laughs) Dennis Earl Bradford. Wow. Okay. Bradford had been arrested on a kidnapping charge in 1997 in, are you ready for this, John? Uh Hot Springs, Arkansas. You were right. Oh, wow. You went to a different state. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. So he was trying to do this crap again. Yes. And that's why he was entered into CODIS because of that. Okay. Now, listen, this is the only other thing he's been charged with. That doesn't necessarily mean he hadn't done something similar or equal to and gotten away with it. Right. Because, I mean, that happened in 1990 and then he got busted in 1997. So he could have done other things between that time. Oh, yeah. Which is scary. Very scary. So he was currently 40 years old, which meant that during the crime, he had been 20 years old. So he was Wow. Yeah. So when a match comes through CODIS, the detectives or agents working the case, in this case both, they must do their due diligence to find out whether or not this would make plausible sense that the person committed this crime. 
So for example, they have to place the suspect in the area at the time or find some other piece of corroborating evidence so the person's defense team couldn't just claim a potential clerical error down the line, especially because what had popped up in CODIS was a crime in Arkansas and they're investigating a crime in Texas. So they have to look into Bradford's background and corroborate some kind of story here as to why he would have been in Texas in 1990. As of 2009, Dennis Bradford had been keeping his nose clean. He had not been arrested since he was released from prison in 2000 from his arrest in 1997. He was working as a welder in Little Rock, Arkansas, and was married. Um, and currently in their home, they had three adult stepsons. However, as they went back into his record, they saw that he was most definitely in Dickinson during the time of the crime as he had gone to high school there. In addition to that, there was a traffic violation in 1987. And the address listed, are you ready for this, John? Yeah. Was an apartment in the same complex as Jennifer. Oh, oh my God. See, I knew it. I knew it. I know. I called uh, it. I can't hold it in anymore. I called it. When I said it, you, mu you must have been like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I was. That's crazy. See, but because you have to think if it's a smaller area, town or whatever, that's where most of the people are going to be in the uh, apartment complex. Yes. Now, it's the arc, you know. Uh, the upside down the you. The upside down you, right? <laughs> Yeah. Where his apartment was, was right across the way from where Jennifer's was. Okay. So he had, if she had this bright illuminating lamp on, he could have seen right into her bedroom window like a fishbowl. Yeah. See, he probably, he saw it and it, he was like, oh, this is convenient for me. Yes. And that means like, and this kind of goes back to the Etherman case too, which was terrifying about it with the light on and it's dark outside she wouldn't have even known he was outside her window. No, not at all. Oh, my God. So Bradford matched the DNA profile, lived 200 yards away from her, and looked like the sketch. He was 100% their guy. When Jennifer heard the news that Dennis Bradford had been arrested, she said it was the most surreal moment of her life. It meant everything to her. Bradford had been pulled over and taken into custody and then quickly extradited to Texas. Over the years, Jennifer had begun to question herself as to whether she got the details right. Was the sketch right? Um, was what he looked like right? Was what he did right? The vehicle? Everything. The fact that everything she told detectives was correct about Dennis Bradford was kind of like this validation that she needed for that eight-year-old girl inside of her. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to understand that we all know that eyewitness testimony, I well, eyewitness testimony is not that accurate. No. And then also, if you're dealing with someone that has been through extreme trauma, those facts could be very blurred. That line is not as clear as you think. Right. And also the fact that she's eight years old, she cannot even verbally communicate at the time. Things could be taken differently. It could have changed the whole outcome. But she was dead accurate on everything that she remembered. Oh, yes. Totally. Which is incredible. Yeah. Now, the interview with Dennis Bradford actually recently went viral again. 
Okay. Why? Um, well, because you know how it is. Like, um, sometimes things kind of loop back into whatever. And, and I guess somehow it had caught in fire on TikTok. The true crime uh, spinning wheel? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> so um, I'm sure you might have seen this, especially if you follow like true crime hashtags on TikTok or Instagram. Um, the interview with Dennis Bradford went viral for a particular reason. But what I want to do is take you. I have the transcript of the interview. Okay. So I'm going to take you through the whole interview so we can get to the point where it what went viral and how it's not really true. Okay. Sorry to burst the bubble, but it's a, it's a good <laughs> clickbait. All right. So the detective is going to say to Dennis, have you ever heard the name Jennifer Shewitt? Yes. Did you ever have occasion to come in contact with her? Yes. Tell me about that. No. You don't want to talk about it? No. Is there a reason why? And then Bradford said, you did your homework. Now, the detective is going to say, "Um, you're right. We did our homework. If you're remorseful about it, people need to hear it. And Bradford responds, not a single day goes by where I don't see that baby. There is no other side to the story. She was innocent, and I was a sick, deranged, beat-up, little effin' punk. She wasn't anybody I knew, and I walked over to this window. I remember it was open, and I could see in it the light was on. And then he paused and said, What do you want? I want you to just start talking and tell me everything you thought, everything that you did, everything that you can remember. Okay, he said, I'm ready for this to be over. I'm sick and tired of looking over my shoulder and being afraid. She was afraid. Right, like, buddy, come on now. (laughs) Okay, forgive me, mama. I pulled that little girl out of the window. I put her in my car and she was freaking out. I told her, please just don't worry. It'll be all right. I told that little girl I was a police officer and everything would be okay. I pulled off on this little road and that little girl, she was so scared. I just lost it. I was like a savaged animal. I, I can't force myself to say it. The detective cuts in. This has been haunting you your whole life, Dennis. Let's hear it. He said, I took that little girl out there and I raped her and I cut her throat. I don't know why. I've never known why. My whole life for the past 20 years has been utterly and completely fucked up because of my mistake. I can tell you've been affected by this whole thing. And I think if you could see her, you'd be extremely proud of her. I really do. This is the part that went viral. He then starts weeping. Oh, thank goodness. And he leans forward in the chair and put his head in his hand. She's alive. Oh, so he had no idea. He thought that she died, right? Well, the detective said she's alive. And then he starts sobbing uncontrollably. Oh, God, you have no idea. I've prayed for this. I'm a firm believer in Christ. I have no idea. 
um, because two days later I ran. So this is what goes viral, right? This is the clickbait. A man who rapes and tries to kill a victim finds out that she survived. Okay. And then people, you know, would watch this part of the interview. However, um, the detectives that were there said they did not believe this whatsoever. Because he had to have known she survived. It was massive news. Like you said. Right, right. You said this is huge news that she survived. I, yeah, I highly doubt that he didn't he know. He definitely knew that she lived. And let's be honest. It looks like and, 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 and in 1996 or 1997, he did it again. Or he tried to. Yes. It, so how remorseful are you? Not at all. Come and on. And this, um, the detective and the FBI agent in the room said it was re- it was not a genuine moment. No, because Not the guy's a monster. He is. So then Bradford told the investigators that he had attempted suicide the day after the attack. He had a shotgun, and just as he was about to pull the trigger, he moved his head because he decided not to take his life, and he blew a hole into his father's ceiling. For this, he was taken in for a psych evaluation, and he was at the same hospital that Jennifer was recovering at. No, no, he was not. Yes. He was there for the psych evaluation after his suicide attempt. Okay, so then I really believe that he had to have known that she survived. Correct. Because I'm sorry, I don't I don't care. Like, you got to think. You have doctors in and out, nurses in and out, people in their hospital. It's huge news They're going to the be hospital. like, oh, did you hear about the girl that survived? Yes. So I don't believe that at all. Yes. Now, Jennifer was watching this whole interview behind a two-way mirror. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And she said she was at so much peace because they had him. Yeah. And he was admitting this. But what he did say about relocating quickly had been true. About four days after the attack, so as soon as he's released from the hospital, he moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas, where his criminal behavior continued. But what he had said about relocating quickly had been true. About four days after the attack, he moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas, where his criminal behavior continued. So like we said, how remorseful was he really? And we don't know what happened in the years between 1990 and 1996, but I can imagine that he probably did a few things he got away with. That's me, allegedly. Allegedly. I I would say that I feel the same way, you know? In 1996, he was arrested on charges of kidnapping and sexual assault. This occurred when he met a 35-year-old woman at a bar. The victim told authorities that he had been trying to pick her up at the bar and he wouldn't take no for an answer. He asked her several times if he could buy her a drink. Finally, she relented and allowed him to buy her one. Later in the evening, she accepted an invitation from him to go for a ride in his car and listen to music. He drove her to a dead-end road where he proceeded to attack and sexually assault her. He cut her throat with a knife, but the wound wasn't deep. It was just like kind of like a superficial wound, but you're telling me he's not reliving exactly what he did to Jennifer Shewitt, and he's remorseful, a firm believer in Jesus? Are you kidding me? Exactly, and it's the same method. Every method, every part of it is exactly what he did to this eight-year-old girl. Yes, and then he dragged her out of the car and into a nearby creek. And he held her head underwater. He was trying to drown her. 
But then for whatever reason, he stopped. He cleaned her up by like wiping her face and body off. And then he left her. He just drove off. The victim remembered his license plate and immediately went to police. Now for this crime, Dennis was sentenced to 12 years in prison, but was released in 2000 on good behavior. He only served three years. Of a 10-year sentence. Oh, a 12-year sentence. Yeah. And he only got 12. It's crazy. That's that's weird. So at that point, he had been divorced. Uh, after this event occurs, his first wife divorces him. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah, I would say yeah. yeah. But he did have two biological children with her, a boy and a girl. Okay. So shortly after his release, he relocates to Little Rock where he meets his second wife. And that's where he was found. After the arrest, Jennifer prepared for the trial. Everyone on the side of the prosecution believed it was a slam dunk case, especially with Jennifer's testimony, victim impact statement. It was definitely going to go in their favor. The trial date was set for August 10th, 2010, exactly 20 years after the incident had taken place. Really? Yes. Jennifer shared with CBS News that she had stayed up endless nights writing her victim impact statement. She wanted to make it perfect, and she had a lot of things she wanted to say to him. But Jennifer would never be able to do that. On May 10, 2010, three months before he was set to face a jury of his peers for the crimes he committed against Jennifer Shewitt, Dennis Bradford died by suicide in his Galveston County jail cell. Now, you know what's so sad about this? When they told Jennifer we arrested him, she said to the detectives, don't let him die by suicide. Don't let him do that. That's the easy yeah. way out. Yep. When the investigators called Jennifer to let her know what happened, all they heard on the other end were screams and sobs. Right, because you know what? Like... This was her time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look how long she's waited to have that kind of inner peace. Right. That's what she said. All I wanted to have was my day in court to stand up to him and tell him what he had done. And now she doesn't get that opportunity. But she went to his grave on August 10th, 2010. So when the trial was set to begin and she read her victim impact statement. Wow. It's intense. So I have it. You have it. Yeah. So she said, Dennis Bradford, I waited 19 years, two months, and three days to find out your last name and for you to be caught. You chose the wrong little 45 pound eight year old girl to try and murder because for 19 years, I thought of you every single day and helped search for you. In my heart, I knew you were out there alive either in prison or living a lie. And now I know, listening to my heart all of these years and never giving up on finding you, that I was right. But I think she had always been standing up to him, right? By her living her life, that was her standing up to him. Oh, 100%. By her surviving. And also always being available to help in the search or the investigation at every level. She didn't need that time in court because she'd already done it right right she'd been able to graduate from high school college get a job that was impactful to the youth of this country she 
formed close bonds and loving relationships. And in 2012, Jennifer and Jonathan found out that they were expecting their first child. Oh, wow. Oh, but wasn't she told that she couldn't have children? They said, potentially, you might not be able to have kids. Got it. But she did. She got pregnant in 2012. And then again, a few years later. That's really good. She had a girl and a boy. I'm really happy. And they have like a happy family life. And he's gone. You know? Yeah. You know, it's just nice to hear that, though, because despite everything that she went through, you know, the physical, the the mental, the emotional, at, at every single point. Like, I should say, at any point, she could have let it consume her and overtake. It shows her strength. Yeah, it does. It really does. And and to be that way, I'm sure she had, listen, I'm not saying it was easy for her. I'm sure there were definitely dark days in her life, but that's so incredible. She went on to have this beautiful life, and now she has two children. That's just amazing. Yeah. Okay, that's the story of Jennifer Shewitt. That was an emotional one to that get through. That was really good. Guys, you have no idea how long it took me to get through that victim impact statement. <laughs> I'm like sitting I'm sitting here like, oh, man. I'm like, you know, should I try to read it? And then I'm like, oh, I probably wouldn't be able to do that either. So, that, yeah. Okay. So, before we go, I want to thank so much our new patrons. We actually have a lot of new patrons, so this is a long list to get through. And again, if I mispronounce your name, you let me know and I promise I'll say it again. So we want to give a big thank you to Melissa Dayton, Julia McIntyre, Ashley Phoenix, Lynn Balamuda, Rosalie Brown, Nicole Frankling, Christopher Bell, Florencia Valle Miller, Pablo Garcia, Kaya Johnson, Nathan, Ashley Chitwood, Rebecca Witzor, Anthony Rabino, Jennifer Montalvo, Luna, Monica, Kelsey, Lee, Vivian Garcani, Alfredo and Frida, Robin Keats Verrier, Mercedes Janae, Maureen McInnes, Michelle Reinhardt Stanton, Heather Trapp, Tater, Susie Koskella, Timberly, Ella Corey Wright, Ashley Foreman, Sophie Ross, Sunflower, and Robert Hartle. Thank you guys so much, and we hope you're enjoying all of the episodes. And for our Patreon supporters, we will see you next week. And for everyone else, in two weeks, guys. But until then, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.